Good morning. Merry Christmas. You know, I've been um, uh, an ABF, Adult Bible Fellowship teacher, for lots of years. Um, and it's a real joy of mine. Um, it's such a difference from a Sunday sermon. Um, for example, I taught the Sunday school class this morning, and I had a page and a half of notes for 45 minutes. And I don't think I got to everything I meant to get to. I have six pages. You shouldn't link that timing out. Don't, don't be afraid. That might go 20 minutes. But because a Sunday sermon is so different, I, I actually I do something that's rare, and I know Pastor Jim does not. I manuscript the sermon. Um, beforehand, I write out everything I want to say in just the way I want to say it, and then I don't. <laughs> and so far, that's always worked out for the best. But sometimes people, in regard to ABF and a Sunday sermon, uh, and not just at this church, but they will remark when, when the sermon seems to match up, you know, that, that what the pastor preached in the sermon was so keyed into what they learned in Sunday school before. And, and I have been asked, as a Sunday school teacher, do you guys talk about you know, do you, do you plan that? And, uh, and sometimes I'll mention, you know, it'll turn out that the thing that you think was linked up wasn't even in my Sunday school notes. And that's really, I mean, that's such a beautiful picture of what the Holy Spirit does when, when he is driving the teaching and the worship and the, um, the parts of the sermon that impact you. That's his work. However, this morning, the person who prepared the Sunday school class and the sermon are the same guy. <laughs> yeah. So I don't think we could readily blame the Holy Spirit for anything that's about to happen. Unless it's really good. But one thing we talked about in, in ABF this morning was the spiritual discipline of worship. And worship is at the heart of Advent. Advent is a season of preparation. Preparation to receive our King. In, um, in ABF, I'm sorry, in, in Awana, many years ago, I was asked to do a, um, a Christmas talk um, for, the AB, uh, for the Awana Christmas party. And I thought, because the one thing that little kids think about Christmas is anticipation. When's it going to get here? And I started by asking the kids, you know, how long have you, has it been a long year waiting for Christmas? Oh my goodness, yes. It, you know, it seems like it's been forever for Christmas to get here. And I said, what if you had to wait 200 years, I'm, I'm sorry, two years for Christmas? Two years for Christmas. And, and they thought that was horrible. Well, what if you had to wait 10 years for Christmas? Wow. And I suggested to them that there were people who waited hundreds of years 
for Christmas to come. How excited were they when Christmas finally got there? And when we're speaking of of the shepherds, and in fact, the angels who were waiting for Christmas to come. The celebration was amazing. And so Christmas in Advent is marked by worship. And that's where I want to focus today. Though I'm taking um, a, a passage that might not be, uh, you know, tick all the boxes for a Christmas pa- uh, passage, it's from 1 Timothy, a personal letter from Paul to Timothy. It does contain a doxology. Now, a doxology is a, a, a little bit of worship, a little um, uh, song of worship that oftentimes, in, in many places in Scripture, fits in. Um, and Paul uses this one, and I, I want to make that distinctive from the doxology, which I grew up with in the Baptist church, um, a hymn that was written, I, I found out, in 1674. I would have thought it was a little more contemporary than that. But um, how many people have heard the doxology? Right? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here. Okay, that is a doxology, and because of copyright law, it's also the doxology. But it's not the one that Paul wrote. In the introductory lines of this letter to his ministry partner, longtime ministry partner, Paul writes warnings. He really starts out warning. Timothy, to always be on guard about false teachers. He describes people who seek attention and honor that are accorded to teacher, and they may be gifted to teach, but their gifts are not submitted to Christ. Their purposes and goals are their own. As a result, they lack the necessary empowerment of the Holy Spirit, and lacking that tend to resort to myths and uncertainties, complex interpretations that they themselves don't even understand. And Paul says, these promote empty speculations rather than God's plan. They end up teaching for flash and not substance. But the teacher submitted to the Lord has a goal of love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Let that be the measure of the men and women whose teaching you give your attention to. So after this warning, Paul shares a very personal bit of his testimony, the testimony of his conversion, salvation, and rescue. I'll read the passage, and as I do, we'll... Think about the presentation he makes of of this element of his testimony, but then we'll focus on the last verse, which is his doxology. And we'll think about the worship of the king he describes at the same time that we hold in our minds the image of the baby in the manger who has come unaccountably to save the whole world. 
I give thanks to Christ, our Lord, who has strengthened me, because he considered me faithful, appointing me to the ministry, one who was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an arrogant man. But I received mercy because I acted out of ignorance and unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And I'm the worst of them. But I received mercy for this reason, so that in me, the worst of them, Christ Jesus might demonstrate his extraordinary patience as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul affirms that his life was apprehended by Christ to demonstrate the Lord's extraordinary patience. I think on a smaller way that could maybe mark your life or mine. For the Lord to take hold of my life, he had to have some extraordinary patience in mind. Because in so many ways, I have not come along peacefully with his plan. But I can be encouraged that if he can transform one like Paul, who then could be beyond the reach of his grace? The impact of making this statement, the sobering truth, the humbling of of sharing his testimony leads Paul to burst out in worship, a doxology. And it's upon these words that I want to focus. As we prepare ourselves for the Advent season, as we celebrate the first coming of Messiah, to worship the one who came from the throne of heaven to a humble shelter in Bethlehem. And as we go to worship, prepare to worship him, our focus needs to be crystal clear about who it is that we're worshiping. Paul's doxology contains no myth. There's no complex interpretation. Nothing the least bit uncertain. By inspiration, Paul, with an economy of words, communicated the greatest miracle since creation, that God himself has entered space and time. He took on a body of human flesh and stepped onto the calendar at the appointed date for his birth. Christ came into the world to save sinners. Now let's let's look carefully at those inspired words of worship. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. 
the King Eternal. If you're using the, the blue chair Bibles, it might say, I think it says the, the King of Eternity or the King of the Ages. It, it's, it's well understood that way. Um, the King who rules through the ages. This call to worship points to his person and the attributes that define that person. He is the king. He was the king. And forever and ever will be the king. He never stopped being king of creation and time and all things for all eternity, even as a babe in the manger. And at this point, I, I want to clarify what we need to be thinking about uh, in light of the Trinity. God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Three persons. Good, I held up three fingers. I literally had to look and check. One divine nature. One shared purpose and will. We know the differences of the persons in the Godhead by how they are described in Scripture, but we know the unity of the Godhead from the same source. In this passage, Jesus, Messiah, God the Son, is being described in Paul's testimony, and it is appropriate to apply this doxology to him. Though the attributes of eternal, immortal, only God are equally appropriate to the other two persons of the Trinity. But uniquely in God the Son, we find the incarnation. A bonding of humanity and divinity. Jesus, though he is one person, is revealed in Scripture to have two natures, a divine nature and a human nature. And so in Christ we see an equally unique expression of these divine attributes. He is the God-man. And he is the king. Immortal. Now there's no mistaking that Jesus came as a baby, and he lived a sinless human life and died a genuine human death. Well, then how does immortality apply in the case of Jesus? It would be impossible to imagine that the only sinless, perfect human life would be subject to the penalty of death that comes with sin. His death, that's necessary for our redemption, was a sacrifice, holy and acceptable to the Father. He willingly gave his life for us, and no one was in position to take it from him. The Father is the offended party in all sin. And the one whose wrath needs to be answered. Jesus offered his immortal human life to suffer a real human death as a substitute 
for you and me. It is, in fact, the attribute of immortality that sets apart this life that was given once for all. Invisible. Well, Jesus was clearly visible. Mary and Joseph and shepherds and others in the Christmas story and throughout the life of Christ, they didn't worship an invisible person. But in his humanity, Jesus' divine nature was veiled and hidden from view. Hebrews 10.20 compares Jesus' flesh to the curtain in the temple that separated the holy of holies, the very presence of the divine God behind a curtain that is his flesh. In the visible person of Jesus dwells the very fullness of, of God, and as his name Emmanuel, God with us, proclaims it. This thin veil of a curtain between the holy presence of God and the sin-filled, distorted world. It was the centerpiece of the great celebration in, in the days of Israel and the temple called the Day of Atonement. Today on your calendar, Yom Kippur. Where one day a year, one person, the high priest, went beyond the curtain with the blood of the sacrifice and sprinkled that blood upon the Ark of the Covenant, upon the top of it called the Mercy Seat. And then he came back out from the curtain. He went in to the divine presence and came back. And we knew, they knew, that the sacrifice was accepted by God because the high priest survived and came back out. It was not a safe place to be. It was, in fact, the most dangerous place on earth. And there is in the biblical record record of high priest dying in that place. And so as we see the incarnation of, of God in human flesh going into the tomb and, and going beyond the veil, taking the blood of his sacrifice to the Father, that in the resurrection of Christ, we see our high priest coming back through the curtain. He could have won our salvation and sat down then, but he came back so we would know that our, sac- that our sins were covered, that our, the sacrifice had been accepted, that our high priest was acceptable before a holy God. In Jesus, the invisible is portrayed to us in humanity. 
the only God. Um, We've touched this morning on the mystery that is the Trinity, the three in one. It's a great mystery, but it's clearly revealed in Scripture. And, And it is a doctrine that separates Orthodox Christianity from heretical error. At this place, we must not let go, in, in reading this passage from Timothy, of the, the, the time and place and purpose of this letter. Paul is grounding Timothy in an important truth, that there is, there is one God. Timothy and Paul both teach the gospel in a world context where Christians were considered atheist for only believing in one God. Where Christians were persecuted for not worshiping other gods, the emperor at times being one of them. When in fact, I, I can imagine people are saying, look, just fake it, that's what I do. But in a world where gods were of every stripe and every type and all over the place, to proclaim, no, there is one God, was a challenge in their world. It's not so much a challenge in ours. In our culture, it might be hard to imagine a world of competing and feuding gods. But for us, what we need to cling to is the singularity of God. We must not let our worldview diminish the majesty of the one true living God, the creator of heaven and earth, the God to whom we owe our lives and our every allegiance. That there is one God to whom we are accountable is the challenge of our culture. And so this doxology and this claim to be the one God fits for our time as much as it fit in Timothy's time. And to this God, be honor and glory forever and ever. This is the God that we've gathered to worship today. This is the God who bonds us together as a community of believers and into the larger community of church, the body of Christ, throughout the world and throughout history. This is the truth that the babe in the manger proclaims. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Now, Paul uses the expression, a trustworthy statement worthy of full acceptance. He only used that four times, three other times besides this, and only in his pastoral letters, only when talking to pastors, in letters that were one person writing to one other person. And he meant to establish an absolutely critical doctrine for ministers of the gospels to def- of the gospel to defend. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. 
If that message is lost, the message is lost. And the sinners he came to save are desperately lost. There's no close call. No one who stands righteous, free from sin, before a holy God, or even near that. There was only one hope for humanity, to be reconciled to God, and, and they rebelled against uh, the God that they rebelled against, and that is the man, Jesus, Messiah. Paul's own life stands as a testament to how far down God will reach to seek and save the lost. Does your life demonstrate this? As we worship him, allow yourself to remember that he reached down and saved you. Christ came into the world to save sinners, and he came to save you and me. The message of Christmas is a message of redemption. And perhaps your day of redemption is today. Perhaps this is a decision, a surrender that's appropriate for you today. Following the service, following a song and a benediction, there will be an elder right over here to privately speak with you, explain to you the gospel and how Christ reaches down for you to free you from your sin. What a great gift to receive this Christmas season. And for those who have placed their faith in Jesus, we can celebrate with Paul. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be glory and honor forever and ever. Amen? Amen. Thanks for watching this video from Hillside Evangelical Free Church. Our hope is that these resources will help you grow as a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. We're located in Greenbank, Washington on Whidbey Island. And if you live in the area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to have you join us. You can find out more information at our website at hillside-efc.com.